and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 109, Comradely Bonds, part one. Now that we're exiting the early life and times of Joseph Stalin, it's time to skip a little bit and get to the final leg of his rise to power. For a lot of takeovers and power grabs that I have covered and will cover in the future, they can be pretty close-run affairs. A little bit of bad luck here or there, and the whole course of history could be different. That isn't quite as true in the case of Stalin's consolidation of power, because it's just that, a consolidation. He didn't grab it. He didn't launch a coup. He simply took the powers handed to him and leveraged them to where he came to have undisputed control. Once he determined that he would seek to attain that level of primacy, it would have been very difficult for his peers in the communist leadership to stop him. And it would have required a coordinated effort by the party's other leading figures. As covered earlier, Stalin's position of general secretary meant that he was in charge of appointments, primarily. And while he didn't make every little one, he made certain that those who made those little decisions were in fact appointed by himself. And while this patronage network didn't encompass the entire party and state apparatus overnight, even by 1924, it was the strongest single block around. And unfortunately for those other communist leaders, they lacked the unity to marshal their own supporters to try and oust Stalin from his high perch. In fact, Stalin exploited their mutual hatreds to his own advantage. Trotsky had always been the most capable leader outside of Lenin and Stalin, but he was also a loner who demanded obedience, not partnership. Stalin, on the other hand, readily allied himself with Kamenev and Zinoviev to form an anti-Trotsky clique in the Politburo. Both of those other guys absolutely despised Trotsky and considered him the much larger problem than Stalin. This also highlighted the other reason beyond simple disunity that the communist leaders couldn't resist Stalin. They didn't see the threat he posed. Oh, certainly he could be a little big for his britches, but they were all old comrades who had known each other for decades and gone through the same struggles and persecutions. It was inconceivable to them that one of their own would divide them from each other and then brutally pick all of them off one by one. But the reason I wanted to cover Stalin's early life before reaching this point was to introduce you to what had produced such a cold monster. The hard life, the world of paranoia, and being rewarded for unflinching violence. All this added up into something that the other revolutionaries didn't really understand. Well, except maybe Trotsky, but even while he understood his rival the best, he underestimated the lengths that Stalin would go in order to eliminate all of them, even up to the point where he had his blind date with an ice pick. All right, let's get this funeral dirge started. The last portion of our introduction to the Soviet Union and the end of one revolution and the start of another. When the 12th Party Congress opened on April 17, 1923, Lenin was incapacitated for the last time and enduring the final agonizing year of his life as an invalid. And the party bosses were already bickering with each other. Or at least Trotsky and Stalin were still going at it over the question of national rights and self-determination within the Union, with Trotsky continuing Lenin's line of a federalist state and Stalin preaching the virtues of centralization. Trotsky, now the most prominent figure with Lenin absent, took center stage amidst thunderous applause. He was still the hero of the Civil War, after all. But he squandered the moment. He delivered an address on the impending shortage of manufactured goods versus foodstuffs, raising the prices of the former and lowering the ones of the latter, which I covered back in episode 101. 
His answer was to introduce central planning of the economy to rein in the disparities of the mixed economy under the NEP. The address was received warmly, but after it, he simply walked out. He didn't stop to mingle or actually secure anyone's commitment to supporting him. He just left. And while one public appearance couldn't be called decisive, that was kind of Trotsky's story through and through. He laid down the gauntlet of what was to be done, but absent a figure like Lenin telling everyone else to fall in behind him, couldn't himself organize people into a unit capable of actually making good on his proclamations. Trotsky's stance also put him at odds with state policy as established by Lenin. After all, the NEP had been decreed by their stricken leader just two years ago, and the debate over the NEP was still ongoing. It had never been firmly established for how long it was supposed to go on. Lenin had sometimes indicated it could be decades, but nothing had ever been set in stone. Left communists, like Trotsky, wanted it rolled back quickly. Those on the right, like Nikolai Bukharin, wanted to stick with it and see where it went. Stalin cleverly positioned himself as a humble servant of Lenin's by backing up the old boss's economic policies. Stalin's opposition to Lenin's position on the nationalities question was brushed off, as Lenin being out of the loop towards the end. Basically, Stalin said that there had been a simple misunderstanding of positions. And regardless, Lenin had always advocated for close economic integration, right? That'd make political integration a slam dunk, as there was little difference between the two in the Soviet Union. The reasoning worked with the audience of the Congress, and Stalin came away with an enhanced image in the party as someone who was eminently reasonable and also a little humble and very dedicated towards Lenin. The lurking problem for Stalin, though, was that Lenin wasn't quite dead just yet. He was mostly paralyzed, but had taken down some personal thoughts just before the third stroke that nearly killed him, and since then had been painstakingly dictating to his wife, Krupskaya, with his limited abilities. The process was slow, and because of his condition, what he produced is suspect to say the least, and could have been manipulated by Krupskaya or others. Which must have been a special kind of hell for Lenin. His body was nearly gone, and he was unable to communicate all that pent-up genius going on in that brain of his. But word started trickling out, as Krupskaya delivered to Zinoviev in May 1923 a short memo ostensibly critiquing the leading Politburo members. Bukharin, he gently chided as being too much the scholar and not enough the Marxist. He called out Kamenev and Zinoviev for their cold feet in October 1917. But most importantly, he commented on Trotsky and Stalin. He praised Trotsky as the ablest of the group, but also called out his arrogance. For Stalin, well, he pretty much told it like it was. He bluntly stated that as general secretary, Stalin had concentrated power around himself but was temperamentally too incautious to be trusted with that kind of power. Not a full-on, hey, get rid of this guy, but a condemnation that Stalin wasn't suited for his current position. The timing of the dictation was also curious. It had probably been written very late in 1922 or in early 1923, before his third stroke almost completely shut him down. That it was only being delivered by Krupskaya in May 1923 was probably due to Stalin clearly being in the ascendancy after the 12th Party Congress. Krupskaya might have hated Trotsky for all the long, pre-October Revolution sniping he had done towards her and her husband, but Stalin's bullying personality had alienated her as well. At that moment, she was able to grasp, like her husband, 
that Stalin was now the greater threat to the party's delicate equilibrium. The document would eventually be called Lenin's Testament, although again, it's uncertain just how much Lenin wrote and when. But it was delivered by Krupskaya, who, not just as the wife of Lenin, was personally respected, so it carried weight. The problem for her was that she delivered it to Zinoviev, who was then allied to Stalin. I can only imagine what must have been going through either of their heads when she delivered the testament. Zinoviev had been Lenin's major domo during the exile years, and he was the most acquainted with not just Lenin, but Krupskaya as well. He was the closest thing that could have passed for a family friend. But Zinoviev wasn't going to break his alliance with Stalin over a piece of paper, especially when it would benefit Trotsky the most. He circulated the testament to the Politburo. Its contents weren't much to go on. The judgments passed were short paragraphs. The document itself was untitled. There was no direction given to actually make use of the criticisms. It wasn't even signed by Lenin. Stalin was understandably unhappy, commenting of Lenin, He shits himself. Now he shits on us. But for the time, no further action was taken. Then, in the summer, Krupskaya delivered another dictation to Zinoviev. This memo was far more specific and to the point, directly calling for Stalin to be removed and that his bullying attitude made him a good revolutionary, but a terrible fit for general secretary. It also warned of a breach between Trotsky and Stalin. This was potentially far more damning if taken at face value, and Zinoviev sat on it for a time, only letting in Kamenev as to the contents while in Moscow. In July 1923, Zinoviev and Bukharin each embarked on a vacation to Gislavodosk, a spa town a little over 50 miles north of the Caucasus Mountains. It was a favorite of party officials, and once there, they deliberated on what to do. They held a small council in a cave with a handful of other officials who were also in the area. Among them was the trade union boss of Petrograd and the military commander of Siberia, both men allied with Zinoviev. Extraordinarily was also Voroshilov, Stalin's close ally in the military. The group debated about how to balance power in the party, but sadly for them, the point was moot. Any permutation that included Stalin would be unstable until a general secretary had taken everything. Days after the cave meeting, Zinoviev brought Sergo Orjanikidze, Stalin's loyal point man in the Caucasus, into the loop, and instructed him to broach their discussions on reorganizing the leadership with Stalin. Predictably, Stalin blew a gasket when he got the news. Of course, Stalin was in the middle of behavior that kind of proved Lenin's point. While Zinoviev, who, remember, was in charge of the Comintern, was himself down south, Stalin started issuing counterorders to Zinoviev's when it came to directing Germany's Communist Party. So, when Stalin got a rude surprise, so too did Zinoviev. Bukharin got one of his own. He was editor-in-chief of Pravda, and while he was down south, his stand-in resigned, which Stalin, to be fair, doing his job, appointed another stand-in. Just he did it without consulting Bukharin, so now both he and Zinoviev were raging about Stalin's overreaching and meddling in their turf. Still, Zinoviev tried to be conciliatory with the general secretary. He told Stalin he wasn't actually going to push for his removal like Lenin's dictation asked for, just install others to act as checks to his position. Stalin had not actually been given the dictation by the end of July, and so was in the dark as to its contents, and was starting to sweat a little. By the end of the first week of August, he had switched to actively fuming. 
They were all communicating via letters, with Zinoviev and Bukharin, the active holders of the dictation, holding court at a vacation resort. Stalin, ever the paranoid, felt isolated and told them as much. While they openly plotted, he had to sit around at the Kremlin and wait on reports to reach him. For a moment, it looked like Stalin could be reined in. But then outside events called everyone back to Moscow. The hyperinflation crisis in Germany had created ungodly worker unrest, and it looked as though the communist strongholds in that country could rise in revolt. This was the dream of the isolated Soviets, and everyone was back in Moscow by mid-August. For the time being, animosities would be buried as everyone watched events unfold abroad. The pause in scheming didn't last long. Debates over who would oversee what, as well as the colossal failure of the German uprisings that I covered way, way back in episode 28 and touched on again in episode 103, meant the gang was quickly at odds with each other again. The only tangible change to come out of Zinoviev's plotting was himself and Trotsky getting top spots in the Org Bureau, which theoretically could have been helpful as either could have used those positions to build up some kind of network of patronage to counter Stalin's. But Trotsky was uninterested in that kind of work, and Zinoviev was far too lazy, and neither made any use of their appointments. Trotsky was so put out that Zinoviev and Kamenev had not just abandoned their efforts to rein in Stalin, but had also joined closer to him by accepting his plan of appointing many of their own people to heighten positions, that he threatened to resign all his offices. Trotsky's tantrum reawakened Kamenev and Zinoviev's distaste for him, and by early November 1923, all talk of removing or even limiting Stalin had been quashed. What now resulted was a new phase in the struggle for power. The Zinoviev-Bukharin talks probably sped up Stalin's impulse to move forward, and he quickly turned his alliance with Kamenev and Zinoviev into a quasi-formal triumvirate formal enough that Zinoviev would spat at Trotsky that he was all alone on the Politburo facing the three of them. This would begin the short struggle between Stalin's center and Trotsky's left opposition. The marshalling period would be the winter of 1923-24, when elections would be held for delegates to the 13th Party Congress in May. And just in case you're wondering, yes, there were elections, just you voted on which communist you wanted to represent you the contest would not be an equal one. Trotsky aroused the passions of intellectuals and students, but Stalin countered his rival's far more attractive personality by offering steady leadership and a claim to being a true adherent of Lenin. The fact that Zinoviev and Kamenev each had their own supporters to throw in was just icing on the red cake. Trotsky was not aided either by several bouts of severe illness, oftentimes so bad that the Politburo meetings had to be held in his apartments. People would report he'd emerge from those rocky sessions, running a deadly fever, and his clothes soaked clean through, whereupon he'd immediately just go to bed as his colleagues showed themselves out. At various times, he would retire from Moscow entirely to convalesce. Stalin would be sure to make use of those absences to rip into Trotsky's demands to make the party more democratic, while also giving Trotsky himself total control of the economy. And after months of publicly hounding Trotsky... Stalin started making noises about actually enforcing the ban on factions that Lenin had implemented three years previous. His old mentor had used it as a tool of party discipline, and now the student intended to use it to crush his rivals. 
Trotsky's position only worsened after Lenin finally died on January 21, 1924. Trotsky was still severely ill and was on a train bound for the Black Sea to rest. Meanwhile, the rest of the Politburo made the trek to Gorky to collect their fallen leader. The next day, Kalinin addressed the Congress of the Soviets that was meeting and announced Lenin's passing. The hall erupted in cries and sobs. Kalinin himself could barely get a word in. He was crying so hard. Eventually, the Congress had to be suspended for everyone to go collect themselves. The funeral was going to be an event, to say the least. But Trotsky would not be there. He arrived in Tiflis on the 22nd and was informed of what was going on. Despite his illness, he alerted the Politburo he was turning around. But Stalin advised him the funeral would be held before he could make it back. Trotsky elected to continue south to the coast as originally planned. This was kind of a weird situation where on one hand Trotsky was deathly ill, but if he really wanted to, he could commandeer trains. After all, he was still war commissar. He could have made it back in time. Trotsky would later claim that Stalin lied since the funeral was actually held a day later than advertised, but that was an on-the-spot decision made when it became clear that all the trains carrying party officials into Moscow weren't going to get through on time. Whatever the actual case was, Trotsky didn't make it to the funeral, and oh boy, was it noticed. At the funeral, the crowds were huge, and almost everybody who was anybody was there. Stalin took every chance to build up Lenin as the party's god, with he himself as the man's most loyal disciple. The Congress of Soviets voted to rename the city of Petrograd to be Leningrad. The funeral itself was held on January 27th, and was a solid six hours long, and took place outside in temperatures of negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. In pictures from it, you can barely recognize the Politburo pallbearers as they were bundled up so thickly. Lenin was deposited in a hastily constructed and very temporary wooden crypt while the debate started on how to properly intern him. You might be aware already, but they went with the unorthodox route of taxidermying him. The idea was actually Zerzhinsky's, and having what was basically a mummy to put on display turned into a propaganda asset for the government, as the eventual site built for him in Red Square in Moscow became a site of pilgrimage. Lenin's position as the chairman of the Sovnarkom was handed over to Alexei Rykov, who along with Kamenev had been acting as Lenin's deputies in that office since his incapacitation. That appointment, though, was clearly overshadowed by the rise of who was becoming Lenin's true successor. The spectacle solidifies Stalin's ascendancy both within the party and with the public. It's hard to imagine given everything that happened later, but Trotsky really was seen as the true successor of Lenin by everyone. He had the brilliant personality, he was the thinker, he was the victor of the Civil War. People the world over knew Trotsky. Everyone in the USSR knew Trotsky. But Stalin had seized the moment and took center stage. He would never relinquish it until his own passing decades later. Trotsky's supporters did attempt to hand out illicit copies of Lenin's testament to party members during the occasion of the funeral, but the overall party leadership banned open publishing and it was treated as hearsay. Besides, everybody caught the vibes in the capital during the week surrounding the funeral. If you wanted to get ahead, might as well fall in with the leading guy, and Stalin was the leading guy. The war of words being carried out within the party culminated in the 13th Party Congress that May. Krupskaya arrived and began to press for Lenin's testament to be published openly, a move backed only by Trotsky. 
The document was read aloud by Kamenev in a plenum of the Central Committee that prefaced the Party Congress. The committee by this time was filled with Stalin's men, and the testament didn't have the effect Krupskaya was hoping for. Zinoviev defended his ally from Lenin's charges of being ill-suited to his post. Stalin himself admitted that he was just as rude as Lenin claimed, and offered his resignation. In a room full of his supporters, though, this was an empty gesture, and the hall immediately shot down talk of him stepping down. The formal Congress went even better for him. Trotsky was a spent force as far as his opposition went. When Lenin had died, Trotsky's meditations down on the Black Sea had led him to conclude that the party had to band together. At the Congress, he offered a conciliatory tone. This backfired as Stalin had no reason to embrace him, and it undermined Trotsky's own supporters, who had been defending him for the past year against the center's constant attacks. Krupskaya openly mocked the turnaround and gave up on trying to counter Stalin, correctly seeing that his opposition didn't have the capability to challenge him. Whatever momentary danger Stalin might have faced previously in July and August 1923 had clearly passed. Even so, Stalin proved to be as thin-skinned as ever. He didn't like being publicly called out, even by a piece of paper that may or may not have been written by a dead guy, even in a room of his own supporters who unreservedly backed him. He reportedly had a minor breakdown, and in the middle of the Congress, quietly fled out to his dasha, where he pissed and moaned to the wife of Tomsky, who unfortunately had decided to go out and check on him. He stood for days bemoaning Lenin's attacks before putting himself back together and going back to Moscow. The point to him was that while the members of the Central Committee might have supported him, they now had something on him as well. With hindsight, we know that it would never come to anything, but to Stalin's paranoid mind, it was something to remember. Going forward, Stalin could look forward to effectively being the leader of the Politburo. At the time, it consisted of seven members, himself, Trotsky, Kamenev, Zinoviev, Rykov, Tomsky, the head of the Central Control Commission, Kubishev, and finally Bukharin, who at 36 was taking Lenin's spot as a voting member of the group. All but Trotsky were friendly with Stalin, but that wasn't enough. The others had to be broken down as well. And the best targets were his closest allies, Zinoviev and Kamenev. Each had their own little bases of support, especially Zinoviev on account of being the party boss of Leningrad, where he effectively built up his own patronage network. A freshly defanged Trotsky, though, just couldn't leave well enough alone and laid the groundwork of their downfalls on Stalin's behalf, if inadvertently. In late 1924, Trotsky was back in Slavodosk, recovering from another bout of illness. He published a piece covering the October Revolution that directly called out Kamenev and Zinoviev's cold feet and their attempts to scuttle the whole thing. This started a fresh war of words, as Stalin directed Pravda to absolutely demolish Trotsky. This was done, but his fellow triumvirs were fatally undermined by Trotsky's callouts. Most people didn't realize they had been against the October Revolution when it was actually getting underway, and it was not a good look for them. Stalin took the opportunity to start getting closer to Bukharin, Rykov, Tomsky, and Kubishev. He started isolating the Leningrad branch of the party that was loyal to Zinoviev, both to cast them as a brewing faction and to convince individual members to come kiss the rig in Moscow and forsake their old boss. 
This is where the NEP really comes back in, as Kamenev and Zinoviev were old, old Bolsheviks who wanted the policy to be very temporary. Maybe they didn't want to go as far as Trotsky with his central planning proposals, but they favored it being wrapped up. Rykov, Tomsky, and especially Bukharin, though, were in favor of it continuing, and to solidify their emerging alliance, Stalin backed them. This also continued his strategy of letting his allies be the ones to attack their mutual targets. It had been Kamenev and Zinoviev who had been the most energetic to go after Trotsky, and now it would be Bukharin and Rykov who would most actively attack the preceding two. There was also a supporting cast of characters that, while not as prominent at this very second, would become core members of Stalin's inner circle. There was Voroshilov, still serving in the army and acting as Stalin's conduit to the Red Army, Molotov, whom Stalin had brushed aside from his leadership position in Petrograd in 1917, and again had supplanted in the secretary game within the party, but had fallen in line and offered his ample organizational skills to help Stalin run the party. Lazar Gaganovich is a name that I'm only introducing now, though. He was a Jew who worked in a shoe factory and was attracted to the more rough-and-tumble side of the revolutionary life. He served as an army commissar during the Civil War, where his abilities as being a hard worker were noticed and got him appointments within the party in Moscow. He was also a very big guy with a huge mustache, so once in a position of influence, he would scare the hell out of his subordinates. But for Stalin, he was great. He was self-conscious about his lack of education, and while a capable organizer, was more than willing to brute force his way through problems. Valerian Kubashev I mentioned earlier, but his story was that he came from a military family that had been ennobled. He was highly educated and probably among the most cosmopolitan among Stalin's allies. He had also been an army commissar, and had actually been the one to put in a good word for Kaganovich, who would otherwise might have been considered too provincial for top appointments. He was kind of an odd man out among Stalin's allies, as his tendency was to rub shoulders with intellectuals and artists. In contrast to this emerging group of allies were the new odd men out, Zinoviev and Kamenev. Zinoviev at least could count among his ranks the Leningrad machine that he had so carefully cultivated since 1917, and that was not an insignificant source of power. Kamenev, who hadn't been appointed to a city of his own or pursued an organizational role within the party, lacked a large base of support, but proved to be an effective operator behind the scenes, arousing sympathy from officials who might have otherwise fallen in line with the center. They were not alone, though, as Krupskaya also joined with them in yet another effort to check Stalin. They were almost joined by Zerzhinsky, but Iron Felix was feeling the weight of his work pressed down, specifically on his heart, and he meekly revealed to the center that their modest rivals were marshalling against them. Of course, this sent Stalin's paranoia raging as he considered how far the OGPU might be compromised. He had considered that organization firmly his, and it was damned useful in reporting the movements and activities of his enemies. But if Zerzhinsky could even momentarily be against him, well then who else could be? Stalin wouldn't act on his paranoia in this case. He couldn't risk turning the OGPU against him by removing Zerzhinsky, and public appearances still counted, and such a public falling out among comrades would have consequences of their own. Luckily for him, Zerzhinsky was in reality completely overworked and physically incapable of supplanting Stalin, which isn't exactly the most suspenseful place to leave the ongoing inner communist struggle for the week, but part of what made Stalin, well, Stalin, was that he wasn't interested in equal fights. Next week, 
The maneuvering continues, and Stalin proceeds with the business of politically strangling his old comrades. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.